Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock. Hello and welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We have a special episode for you today. Cable and I went to Fluent slash Velocity in San Jose last week and had the chance to talk to some amazing people. We bring you three of those great conversations today. First, Brian Douglas, a developer advocate at GitHub, Amy Knight, who used to be a professional ice skater and now a full stack developer, and Brian Hughes, a technical evangelist at Microsoft. Enjoy the show. Hey there, K-Ball here at Fluent Conf reporting. I'm here with Brian Douglas, developer advocate at GitHub. Brian, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well. Awesome. I saw you speak yesterday, um, talking a little bit about GraphQL and things like that. Can you uh, tell us about your talk and how it went? Yeah, yeah. So we, I got the opportunity of doing a lightning talk at Fluent Conf. So we had like a handful of lightning talks, and my my talk was focused around exploring GraphQL uh, in your API. And it goes back to so I work at GitHub now, but prior to GitHub, uh, I worked at a company called Netlify, who is also a sponsor here at Fluent Conf. Um, and I got the opportunity to do some like research and development around getting GraphQL into our API. And my talk kind of covers how I didn't want to actually own the backend mm -hmm. to get GraphQL to work. And I got a lot of pushback from our backend teams to add in GraphQL because at the, at the moment, GraphQL is really valuable for front-end developers. Right. And uh, so I just talked about my experience and how I got GraphQL working uh, at Netlify and how I use Graph GraphQL at GitHub now. Yeah, so one of the things you said that was really interesting to me was that an upcoming version of the GitHub API is going to be all GraphQL? Yeah, so it's actually already out. So version 4 is out. It's public. You can use it. So version 3 is what you would know as the REST API, mm -hmm. and then version 4 is the GraphQL API. And the cool thing about it is like version 4 is the last version. Um, with GraphQL, you can make changes to your API without breaking certain things, like outside of like name changes. So we do have some breaking changes coming up in the next few months that we happen to change the names of endpoints. Uh, but other than that, like the breaking changes are, you just either add to GraphQL and you don't really need to remove things. 
Awesome. So for folks who aren't familiar, can you give us a, a just quick rundown on what GraphQL is and how it differs from traditional APIs? Yeah. So GraphQL came out of the, the Facebook team, uh, Lee Byron and I uh, forget Dan's last name, Dan and the third person who also escapes me. Lee's probably the most public facing uh, GraphQL team member. Um, and they came up with spec to interact with the backend that was different from REST. So Graph being Graph database, QL being query language. Mm -hmm. uh, so GraphQL is just another way for your mobile team, your front-end team to interact with the API that doesn't have to be a REST way. Yeah, one of the things that interests me a lot about it is it, it's almost flipping your paradigm on your head. So instead yeah. of crafting your API around your backend representation, your models that you are exposing as resources, yeah. you are allowing the front-end to say, here's the data I want right now, just give it to me. You figure out the rest. Yeah, and that's a, that's a cool thing about it is that as a as a front end developer, and I was a longtime front end developer at Netlify and previous companies, um, I continued though I had the capacity to go back and do back end changes. I continued to have to go to the back end team and say, "Hey, this endpoint's not producing the the right payload. I'm missing like emails for this user. Um, can you add this?" And then the process of like waiting and requesting and like. I think of like backend changes like the equivalent of like front end developers and copy changes. Like no one wants to do them, but you're gonna have to like queue those up, and someone, junior developer or whoever, has to like crank through those. And now it's everything's in the payload, and you every, as long as you whitelist it on your GraphQL endpoint, and then you can now just define your schema on the front end or inside your if you're doing mobile on your client, and you get what you need, and everybody's happy on both ends. Nice. Now in your talk, you talked about introducing GraphQL as a wrapper yeah. with a W. And in JS Party, we have a long history with, with joking about wrap and things like that because it's a party about JavaScript, yeah. and we're all nerds, so we're terrible at wrapping, but we try occasionally. Okay. Uh, but can you talk about that kind of wrapper concept? Like, how is it that you introduce... GraphQL as a wrapper around an existing API. Yeah, so I I had this like long pun, and I noticed I never actually mentioned like hip hop or rap. Um, uh, that was kind of like my ploy, my ploy in giving the talk is like don't address the slides, but talk about wrappers as in the GraphQL. So wrappers to explain for the listener is like if you think of like API gateways, like GraphQL gateways uh, instead. So you're just taking your normal REST API and you're wrapping it into a GraphQL schema. So one, it's a third party that doesn't have to break or deprecate anything on the rest side, but you're just exposing GraphQL on the for any sort of front end cons, uh, uh, consuming. And uh, so I built a wrapper using Apollo's Launchpad uh, to be able to prototype um, GraphQL on my front end and be able to consume that in like what at the time was a React Native app. And from there, I was able to, one, check the box that I wanted to use GraphQL in this React Native app. And then two, I didn't have to like get complaints from the backend team saying, hey, you're dropping all this code in here for us to support and you're just going to go do your front end thing and like disappear. So I now I was able to support my prototype and then go back to the team and say, hey, GraphQL works. Here's the metrics. Everything's the same. Um, and here's all the things we can kind of unlock if we use GraphQL going forward. So, so that I understand, what you're essentially doing then is your gateway calls back to your REST API, pulls whatever sets of resources it needs to yeah. expose kind of caches them in some way and then exposes yeah. them via GraphQL? Yeah, and the caching, like, that's that's something that a lot of people are talking about now. And, like, GraphQL Europe is literally happening at the same time as FluentConf. So I'm sure a lot of cool com conversations will happen around that. Uh, but, like, a company like Apollo, uh, we're actually Meteor is Apollo's project, or vice versa. Apollo is Meteor's project. Uh -huh. And they do caching for you within, like, the Apollo 2. So Peggy had a, a talk about uh, Apollo in general mm -hmm. um, and what it does there. So... 
that's what the handles the caching, but everything is the same. So if you do caching on your backend already, um, every time you hit your GraphQL endpoint and you're hitting that API on the rest side into your gateway, like if you've hit it already, the caching exists. So all that's the same unless you want to pull it to a GraphQL side. And I think now those like rate limiting caching happening on the GraphQL gateway side are conversations and solutions that are happening now. But prior to that, everything you did with REST, exactly the same. Nice. So it feels like in a lot of ways, this is part of the evolution towards more complex front ends. And as we've tried to do more and more on the front end, we've then had to think more and more about data and you have stuff coming like the Elm architecture and Flux, Redux, Vuex, all these different ways to do it. Is GraphQL a replacement for those? Does it play nicely with those? How is it? Yeah, that's a conversation a lot of people, there's a lot of popular blog posts that get really popular, but really don't have much substance to it where it's like, GraphQL is the replacement for REST. I don't believe that's the case. I think GraphQL is an enhancement to REST. And if you go the gateway route, like you're still, you have a REST API, you're still exposing stuff the same way. And if we zoom out a little bit more of like what's happening on the front end, like there's more infrastructure going to the front end. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like now we have things like Webpack that are this making everything magically happen on our front end. We're bundling down to like HTML and CSS and like the good old days. And like, I think as, as we're speaking, like Brendan Ike is going to be talking and speaking on the main stage. Like he's one of the, the grandfathers of the web and uh, they've been doing it like that for years. And now we're, we're revisiting that uh, by using things like Webpack and now with like Redux and then we're managing all our data on the front end. And this, we have the, I, I like the term like front end for your back end for your front end type of deal. Uh-huh. So I think GraphQL is just enhancing that sort of our conversation where now you no longer have to worry about like actions and reducers. Now you're just working about uh, queries and mutations. And uh, so it's just a, a different paradigm, but I think I could see GraphQL ex- expanding into other front end architectures and being more of like a, a thing that people are going to get more serious about in the next few years. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that in terms of maturity. Yeah. Uh, you said a lot of the questions around caching and things like that are still getting figured out, but it also sounds like you've been using this stuff in production for a while. Yeah. How mature is the system? How mature is the ecosystem? Like if people are thinking about getting in, are there any uh, bears in those woods? Yeah. So it came out of like public beta. So it's like, it's now it's public, no longer beta as of last year, GraphQL, um, in the fall of last year. Um, so it would have been last GraphQL summit that just happened uh, in the San Francisco. Um, so at that point, a lot of companies had started attaching themselves to the GraphQL space and announcing that they've been using GraphQL secretly on side projects. So as more and more people get into production, uh, which it seems to be quite a few people, uh, large companies people have heard of, um, like Airbnb, one being one of the recent ones announcing their GraphQL experimentations and github's been one of them since prior to the public beta like we've been using it internally for a very long time and now going forward like a lot of our api usage and for public api usage and new features are going to graphql only so specific features mainly due to like problems that we have i was explaining actually to another person at lunch about one of the common problems i have as a github user um as an employee now and also as a previous user of the api is that as soon as you start testing the API, you hit rate limit. It's like right away. Yep. It's like, oh, crap. I didn't mean to hit that 100 times. So now I have to wait an hour to hit that rate limit. But now with GraphQL, you don't get that sort of like problem. Like you can solve that problem a little easier um, mm-hmm. by limiting rate, uh, rate limiting um, within 
like the schema that you're defining. So if you want a hun- if you want repositories, we're going to give you a hundred repositories, and you have to paginate after that point. So it's just built into the API. At Interesting. That point. Yeah, I, I remember trying to set something up where I was not using the built-in widget, but I was trying to show how many stars or something like that, and I was hitting the API and any sort of public facing website that has any amount of traffic hits the rate limit almost instantly. Yeah. So does this get you around that? You basically Yeah, we're working on some creative things. Like I don't actually work on the GraphQL team at GitHub, but I'm following close enough. Uh, I'm actually fairly new to GitHub within the last uh, six months, so I got in a, a great time apparently. Yeah. And uh, that must have been a crazy ride. Yeah, it it's it's has been a crazy ride. Uh, it's been interesting, uh, interesting week, I guess. I'm not sure when this podcast will come out, but uh, yeah, uh, we'll look back and read all the blog posts in years from now and be like, ah, I was there. But as far as the GraphQL stuff. Um, like a lot of people are doing real interesting things. I think this is a year where people are starting to talk about the solutions and the problems that they have solved. So like part of my talk was like the fact that I couldn't use Mongo uh, as part of my GraphQL schema in my Rails app uh, and that everything was built like pretty much cookie cutter Rails app. It works with GraphQL, but anything outside of that, it doesn't. Um, but within the six months of me submitting, getting accepted and doing my talk, like it, Mongo works and the, like the cookie cutter Rails gem. So right. I think a lot of other things and Apollo recently came out to our Apollo 2.0 earlier this year. Um, now, um, Caching is built in as part of the solution for that. Schema stitching is another thing I briefly mentioned in my talk. Um, now that's like a trivial solution that people like Prisma are solving, and they have really good guides and tutorials around that. And when I say schema stitching, it's literally taking two different schemas or APIs and merging them together, which I have a whole other talk that I, I've given at GitHub Universe about taking the GitHub API and using your regular API and is merging the GitHub API as part of your API and backend from GraphQL. Um, so it looks like everything's coming from the same source, but in, the, in reality, you can combine multiple sources in one endpoint. Pretty cool. Yeah. So as you said, it's been a kind of a crazy week. Is it verboten to ask you about that? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion online. Is this the end of GitHub as an open thing versus, <laughs> well, you know, Microsoft has actually been a pretty good steward the last few years and all yeah. this. What's the vibe from inside the building. Yeah, so I think you could really go to the, Nat Friedman, who's going to be our future CEO. Nothing's finalized at this point, but he had a really good post at um, I think we have a short URL. It's like git.io slash nat dash high. Um, and it's his, he put on GitHub pages, started up a, a whole site. So Nat's a talented developer, yep. led the Xamarin team. Uh, Which I've heard only good things about, yes. by the way. Xamarin, I've never used it because I'm not a .NET guy, but my friends who are in .NET, they're like they swear by it. Yeah, same here. I, I haven't touched .NET or know much about Xamarin, but everybody I came in, uh, in the contact uh, in the last week who have been pinging me and texting me and telling me congratulations uh, only do nothing but rave about our new CEO. So internally, we're all very excited, uh, and we're looking forward to how we can influence Microsoft, which... Satya, it's a public public uh, announcement, but he he's looking forward to seeing how GitHub can rub off on Microsoft rather uh-huh. than vice versa. So we're very excited about um, what we can do now that we have Microsoft as mother the corporate over angel, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the corporate angel, yeah, M- mother Microsoft is what I've been saying. Yeah. Um, another question that's sort of more GitHub related than GraphQL related, yeah. and if if you want to just stay on the tech side, just push back on me, but. Um, Something that's been going around a little bit as a controversy is the value of a GitHub profile as a resume and the ways in which, on the one hand, it is a relatively open way to demonstrate competence and skills and various other things. On the other hand, it unfairly 
biases towards those who have the time and free, uh, you know, basically free time to invest in that. Does GitHub have a stance on this? Or are yeah, I, I don't know if GitHub has a stance. I know a lot of Hubbers have uh, tweeted publicly about their hiring practices, which is all the same within GitHub. Like when I was hired at GitHub, no one looked at my GitHub profile. So that's if, a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. So and it's it's funny because as I was doing my second pair programming interview, I made it alluded to my GitHub profile, and the interviewer actually mentioned, "Yeah, I have actually haven't seen your profile um, because we don't actually look at your profile." Um, so we love people who have lots of contributions on GitHub and are using it actively and are a part of our open source community. It's a really great way to see like what other people are working on, other cool projects that maybe somebody I'm following on has contributed to, and maybe because I know them, I can reach out to them directly and be like, hey, I saw you work on X or Y, can you give me a like mentorship or help me into that, that project? So, but as far as a hiring practice, like GitHub is not going to be the next LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn will be the next LinkedIn and GitHub will continue to be GitHub. And they'll both be owned by Microsoft. And exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think GitHub is a great positive signal, but it's a terrible negative signal, right? Yeah. If, you, if you've got somebody who has an amazing GitHub profile, they're probably going to be pretty good. If you've got somebody who doesn't, that doesn't tell you anything about them. Maybe they've just worked in the closed source world. Yeah. And if I could do a shout out to one of my interns for the summer, uh, she actually wrote a blog post about laser cutting contribution graphs um, onto wood. And it was like Ooh. part of her, one of her first projects as, as an intern at GitHub and uh, helped her out with that. She got help with Katrina Owen and C. John Run as well, um, who are both hubbers. And it's funny because I look back at she printed my my business card. Uh, they're business like business card shapes and she printed them out. And I look at back in my last year and I had two weeks off in August. And like that's a proud signal for me to see that like I had two weeks off of no GitHub contributions. Yeah. And that I can say, okay, I had work life balance because I spent two weeks in London um, just exploring. And I think Katrina actually had the same experience too. And she noticed like two years ago when she was kicking off exorcism, rather three or four years ago when she was kicking off exorcism, she had nothing but dark greens. But in the last year, she's got uh, some pretty healthy days off. So it, it kind of, it's a good testament to see, like, it, do people really, truly like work-life balance. Um, but with that being said, we don't look at GitHub profiles as GitHub. So if you want to work for us, check us out, and regardless of if you have a profile or not. Another GitHub-related question while I've got you, uh, and I know you said you've only been there six months, and I'm asking you to represent the company in a lot of ways, but um, one of the things that has been getting a lot of discussion over the last year or so is the complicated relationship that open source has with money and ways of funding developers to work on open source. Uh, there are things, you know, folks who are putting up Patreon accounts to try to fund their open source work. Yeah. There's folks, uh, there's now this company open collective that is trying to provide ways to fund a project as a whole rather than an individual. It has been highlighted in one of our recent podcasts that GitHub has not really done very much to support that type of thing. There's no ability to do like, for example, a buy license button on an open source project or something like that. Is that something that you're aware of? Is there a corporate policy around that? Is that something we might see more of in the future where GitHub might support open source developers in ways of funding their projects? Yeah, there's not much I could speak on about like what GitHub's doing to solve the problem uh, within our roadmap. But I do want to point to Nat Friedman, who recently had an AMA on Reddit, and the question was posed to him and his response. He actually 
uh, was either affiliated or started a company that actually monetized, or not monetized, but paid uh, for contributions outside. Or somebody, You have to go back to the post. Uh, there's a good summary of his AMA out there. Uh, but it's something that actually piqued his interest. And I know it's something that's piqued a lot of interest. And I know um, a lot of other companies are doing really good things. Like Open Collective is like very successful at the Webpack community and mm-hmm. they're doing great things. I think GitHub is really taking, paying attention to a lot of those things, but I can't really speak on, on what our solution is. I think a lot of, there's a lot of good solutions out there that people should really look into and a lot of them that you have named. Yeah, now both GitHub doesn't have to worry about direct monetization as much because yeah. there's lots of indirect ways that Microsoft can monetize off of what GitHub is doing. Um, and Anytime there's a big change, there's a, an opportunity for uh, re-examining yeah. and changing. Well, as a developer advocate, yeah. I know there are lots of developers who would love you to advocate for ways to, to get money to open source. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're I'm, so I'm, I'm a developer advocate at GitHub, but I'm also helping with the GitHub developer program as well, which has been in existence for a little bit, um, but it's still getting its feet off the ground. It's been established way before even the Microsoft inkling of the conversation started. Um, but if you want to be part of GitHub Developer Program and you're looking to get closer to GitHub and uh, find out more information about new API releases, changes, the whole GraphQL thing, we do workshops that we funnel it directly to the program. Uh, you can sign up at developer.github.com slash program. And uh, I would love to talk with you. I'm literally doing tons of interviews in the next week um, with current members and finding out what they're looking for and to get out of a program to this nature. Anything else you want to touch on? Um, no, I'm BWO at Twitter and I'm at FluentCom. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies and 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And here's the kicker. It's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even going to give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of JS Party, they're going to give you $600 instead. And even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for, get this, $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it too easy. Get started at Hired.com slash JS Party. I am here talking with Amy Knight, former professional ice skater turned <laughs> full stack developer. Amy, how are you doing? Very good. How are you today? Life is great. Good. Same. <laughs> so, so you're speaking tomorrow morning. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about your talk? Yep. So uh, I am not 
super, you know, deep diving into CSS anymore, but because I'm at a new job now, but I was at Warner Brothers for about two years and I was doing, I was doing front end there. So I'm back to like full stack now, but, um, while I was at Warner Brothers and I guess, you know, the talk is, um, a deep dive into CSS and like how the browser renders your style sheets and the backstory on that is I, you know, when I first started programming, JavaScript was the part that really scared me. And CSS, I was like, oh, you know, this is super easy. Um, it's kind of, you know, just change a color here and there. And, and you know, JavaScript was the part that I was really scared of. But then somewhere, you know, kind of like my progression as a developer, I felt really confident with my JavaScript and my ability to debug my JavaScript. And like, you give me a problem with JavaScript, um, eventually, you know, I'm going to be able to figure out the solution. And I'm going to be able to reason about it and tell you, you know, if it's not working, why it's not working. Uh, but as I got more advanced with CSS, I did not feel that way. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was just like blindly throwing <laughs> darts at a dartboard half the time. And when I got to Warner Brothers, uh, and, you know, like really amazing designers and they hand you something and, you know, you have to implement it. I really felt like I couldn't call myself a front end developer because I could implement the logic all day for the JavaScript. But I um, I was just felt scared sometimes when they'd hand me these designs. Like I, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. And um, so. Long story short there, uh, I I also with JavaScript, I'm kind of one of those proponents for understanding the language before you really like deep dive into the framework. Mm -hmm. And so I I wanted to apply that same, you know, reasoning to CSS. And so I figured, you know, if I really want to be able to debug my CSS, I need to understand at a lower level what's happening. So I wanted to understand how the browser is actually like parsing my style sheets. So I started, uh, you know, going into that. And then I also wanted the talk to be a little bit more practical and, you know, stuff that like common problems developers face. So that's the stuff I like dug into. Awesome. I'm excited to have (laughs) CSS on the stage at a conference like Fluent because I feel like in our industry, it's often sort of devalued and pushed aside. I mean, that's, I was very much one of those developers. Like, and when I got to Warner Brothers and, um, you know, some of the people that I worked with, uh, I had, I got. I gained so much respect for some of uh, their designers because their CSS skills were amazing. Uh, and I wanted to be able to do that as well. And, um, you know, I couldn't just in my whole process too, learning, you know, still JavaScript is my go-to and I would, I would much rather write JavaScript than CSS still to this day, which is why I'm back to doing full stack and not CSS. But, um, you know, other stuff I talk about in the talk too, it's important to understand when to reach for CSS, when to reach for JavaScript, because the browsers are implemented in such a way that uh, although you can do the same thing in JavaScript, you're going to get, you know, a, a lot better performance if you use CSS to do certain things. So, you know, that's another thing, like it, it pays to understand how to do these things because it's the most efficient way to do them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I saw uh, at some point Sarah Drasner tweeted yep. about the uh, team that had re-implemented Position Absolute with 2,000 <laughs> lines of JavaScript. Yes, yes. Re-implemented a buggy <laughs> version of Position yep, Absolute. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it's it really helps to understand your tools. And I think CSS often ends up being undervalued because many people coming into development are 
used to thinking about things logically rather than visually. Yep. Yep. And it's a language that is really designed for the visual. Yes. Which yeah. has different constraints yes. and different design choices. Yeah. And I, like I know for me, you have to think about CSS differently than you think about JavaScript. So when you're writing CSS, you know, sometimes you do want things to be global and you do want inheritance and you do want like that. I mean, you want the cascade with JavaScript, you know, you usually want to try to isolate things. Yeah. So you have to think about it very differently. Yeah. You know, there are a few isolated cases having to do with team size and project size where completely isolating your CSS yeah. makes sense. Yes. Because you don't want, you know, one person on this 100 person team to break something that yes. someone else on this 100 person team <laughs> yes. implemented and what have you. But most people are not in that situation. Yeah. And visual consistency is important. Yep. And what the cascade and this global yep. vision can give you yep. is that kind of visual consistency. Yep. <laughs> so I, I guess like another cool thing, too, is um, for people and there's a lightning talk that I want to try to get to when we're done. Um, and they're going to kind of go into more of something called Houdini. Have you heard of this? So, oh, yeah. So I have like a slide or two about that. Um, but, you know, that's another thing I think. Uh, you know, CSS is getting like more and more attention now and it's becoming like, quote unquote, a little more cool with stuff like that where you can go more lo low level and like play around with things. So I'm excited yeah. about that, too. Yeah. The idea of being able to polyfill CSS yep. perfectly. Yes. Is super exciting. Yeah. And like implement new things, too. Um, you know, we have the ability to do that in JavaScript, but we haven't had the ability to do stuff like that with CSS. So. Yeah, one can imagine a Babel-like project <laughs> yes. built on top of Houdini for yes. CSS. Yes. Of, okay, really this cool. is how we're going to push this spec forward yep. and you implement it before yep. the browsers do. Exactly. Like, we'll be able to give them feedback and say, you know, what's valuable, what maybe isn't so valuable and stuff like that. Awesome. Cool. So you said now you're doing full stack. Yep. Is it all JavaScript? Uh, it's not. So I still, I you know, I lean more JavaScript, but we, so it's a banking application, um, but it's more like a startup. So uh, I work for a place called Built Technologies and the application, it's in the fintech space, which, which is uh, finance. And so we integrate with banks and what we do, if anybody has ever um, taken out a construction loan or renovation loan, the process for that is a lot now, it's very different than um, if you just get a loan for like a mortgage on your house or something like that. Uh, so the construction process is like they um, you don't get the money all up front. So you they release funds based on inspection progress. And so, you know, you get X amount of dollars and um, banks uh, in the past, like they're doing this all uh, with like Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that. So um, they entered the space like three, five, three, five years ago um, and have like an automated way for people to do this. And I've worked at a couple startups here and there. And um, I, a lot of people like work for startups. And sometimes I will, I will say like, quote unquote, you like drink the Kool-Aid or you don't. And I've always been envious of developers who have drank the Kool-Aid where they're at because I've been at various startups and I hadn't drank the Kool-Aid, but mm -hmm. where I'm at now, I've definitely drank the Kool-Aid. So I am pretty passionate about what we're doing and excited about what we're doing. And, but, um, to answer your question. So on the front end, we have uh, a lot of like legacy JavaScript, um, jQuery, uh, some like very old, uh, stuff called can, there's a framework called CanJS. Uh, and we're on a very old version of it, um, but we're writing new stuff in React. And then we have um, some stuff in Node on the back end, too, and some stuff in Python. Uh, honestly, I took the job because I just I really love uh, my teammates. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. That makes all the difference in the world. And then two, um, it's actually been really interesting and dare I say fun to work in more legacy JavaScript like that. Uh, I make the joke it's kind of like playing the game kerplunk where (laughs) you have to very carefully pull you know the stick out since all the marbles don't fall all over the place because um we are now we're just the the react code has tests and we're starting to write an end test for like the legacy javascript because the it's uh, we we have like this one method and I think I posted a picture of it or something on Twitter. The psychomatic complexity is like 120. So funsies. <laughs> yeah. So all that to say, um, I've actually kind of enjoyed working in the code base because you have like very interesting constraints there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need to go in there and, you know, mess with this, you know, psychomatic complexity method is like 120 and you need to go in there. I'm a very precise person and I enjoy that. And so you have to really like take your time when you're in there, understand what's going on. And you kind of have to be a little bit careful about what you're doing. And well, if you look at fun. the industry at large, right, like the sexy stuff is all the brand new projects <laughs> yes. using only yes. the new framework yes. and what have you. But how many code bases? I mean, yeah the rate this stuff changes, right? The, the cutting edge changes every year or two. Nobody can rewrite their apps every year or two. And so the vast majority of our code is legacy code. Yeah. I I don't know. I really enjoy it. There's actually a startup, um, in, or like a consultancy startup in, I'm not sure where they're based on. They're called like Corgi Bytes. And I listened to the, one of the developers there do a talk a while ago and they do really legacy stuff. Uh, and, you know, like the process that he described seems a little bit like what we're going through. And it's been very interesting. I've kind of enjoyed it. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious to poke a little more because I have I do training where I work with okay. teams to figure out how they connect from their legacy code base to the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. new hotness, yep. whatever yep. it happens yep. to be. And sometimes that's as much as yep. like, let's teach you how to refactor yep. your massive single pa- single style sheet into SAS. And okay. You know, use a front end yep. build system for yes. the first time and yep. things like that. So when you got there, were they already using React for some pieces or has oh, that, have you seen how that process has evolved? They or? have, they, they were, they, they had some stuff already, um, but like very, very minimal. And as I've been there, um, we've been doing more. So the process that they went through, and this was like before I started um, a little bit while I was there. So kind of the bridge that we're using is TypeScript. And so uh, they hired a consultancy to convert everything over to TypeScript and uh, start integrating. So we have, you know, a portion of the application that's still like just plain old jQuery, a portion of it that's can, and now the new stuff in React. And so TypeScript has kind of been the bridge to get us into more modern JavaScript, even in the legacy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, the hope there is without testing that at least we have like some IntelliSense now and we can start writing interfaces and stuff so that it's a little bit easier if we need to go and clean stuff up. We know, you know, maybe if something's not being used or, you know, what needs to get passed to it and and stuff like that. So that's been a bridge. um, And I've enjoyed, you know, working in TypeScript. It's been pretty fun too. And it makes you... 
I, I think too, it would be, it's a good thing for people, you know, you don't feel too far behind. You're working in a, you know, older application. At least you're getting to write like some, you know, newer JavaScript that way, even if you're using an older framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to go in a different direction. Yep. Um, I, I'm a little fascinated by your story of coming from sure, being sure. Yeah, a professional yeah, yeah. Yep. athlete, <laughs> essentially. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. I was looking at your website, like it wasn't that long ago. You no. went through a boot camp 2014 yep. Yep. and now you're speaking at conferences, <laughs> keynoting, uh, <laughs> speaking on uh, podcasts, JS yep. Jabber, all sorts of stuff. So one, sort of what has that process been like for you? And two, for other folks who are looking to get into the industry or just getting started, like yeah. what are your thoughts and recommendations? Uh, yeah, so I almost get goosebumps about it because uh, it is one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, and it's absolutely, I know um, Tracy Lee is going to give a talk about this and it, it has changed my life. Um, you know, in a lot of, you know, in, in so many different ways and so many good ways. Um, but to like the backstory on that for people who haven't heard. So yeah, I spent majority of my life as a like competitive figure skater and I went to college, but the plan was kind of just that I was going to coach the rest of my life. And, um, my parents did not really push me too hard academically. And I thought, you know, yeah, I probably will just coach, you know, this, this was, this was my life. I mean, I, uh, traveled around competing and I, I, you know, made it really far, but, uh, and so my junior year in college is when I kind of thought, you know, I had been through so many injuries and I just kind of wanted to do something very different than what I'd done all my life. But at that point it was too, too late to change majors. Mm -hmm. So I finished out what I was doing and I started working for an advertising agency. And so I ended up doing like marketing type stuff and, that's how I landed or, you know, that's how I kind of got turned on into programming. There was a developer that I was working with and I, I, the story really was that I was doing like marketing slash project management. So it was a very small agency. So, you know, we wear a lot of hats and we had our own site, which was written in the expression engine and we had changed addresses and the phone number had changed and uh, I got tired of asking the developers to like go in and update it. Right. And uh, I don't think it could, we couldn't actually change it like just in the CMS portion. We actually had to change some stuff in the code. And so I went home one weekend. I thought like, I'm so tired of asking this. I'm going to figure out how to do it myself. Yeah. And I did that and I was hooked. So like, I, I mean, I had to make the changes on the live site, but I was absolutely hooked. And um, so a couple of weeks of that, I, I started going back to school for a second bachelor's degree, but just not going fast enough based on, you know, I started going to meetups and talking to other developers. And so the stuff that I was hearing at the meetups, they had no clue about in school. And so that's when I decided to do the boot camp route. Uh, so I went to six month one in Nashville and uh, I was one of the very first cohorts. I was cohort four. So like I really got in uh, at the right time, I think. And yeah, it just it has changed my life in so many ways, whether it be, you know, able to one of the most like very, I don't know, I will say like a very empowering thing is like to be for anybody, not just a woman, but to be a woman and be able to like support myself. And it's there's so much freedom in that, yeah. uh, you know. I, I just bought a house. So like awesome. being, being able to think, <laughs> like being able to support myself in these kinds of ways and, you know, is, is incredible and amazing. But 
that's almost, I mean, that's just kind of like the small parts and like it has changed kind of the way I view the world. Um, like I love our community and all the different people in it. And, um, it's changed the way I think about problems and think about the world. Um, because just the way I break things down, um, kind of question things and not always take things, you know, at face value and really dig into them. Uh, you know, another part too, is I, I skated for so many years and I learned, you know, in my twenties that my personality just kind of thrives on having something I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so that was another thing. Like after skating, I knew marketing was like not cutting it. I, I needed something really to like dive into and, yeah. you know, something beyond just like a nine to five. Yeah. And so programming did that for me and, and still does. Like, I just, I love it. So that's awesome. It's like how many people, I just feel super blessed. Like how many people get to, you know, do something they love and they get, you know, paid to do it. It's their job. And yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so. Absolutely. No, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, the tech industry and, and programming has been certainly been very good for me in my yeah. life. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm now doing more teaching and training is yeah. I want to enable that because yeah. it is you know, it, it's one of the few jobs that you can get right now where you can come in without a degree mm -hmm. you can self-teach or yep. go through one of these yes. boot camps or um one uh thing that i've seen recently that i really love is uh this new thing lambda school that austin yep. already is doing where they don't even charge you up front mm -hmm. uh, they'll only charge you if you end up in a job making yep. at least 50 grand a yep. year uh, yep and then it's a percent yep. based on your income so it's it's guaranteed to be affordable. Yep. Uh, so you can come in, you don't have to go through a degree. You can self-teach or go through yeah. one of these boot camps. You can get yourself a solid upper middle class yeah. incomes, sometimes even better. Mm -hmm. um, you can do it from anywhere. It's, you can, it's, I mean, I, I am always very careful people who want to get into it. Like I'm very, very cautious of like making sure you get into it for the right reasons. Like I think you do have to, it's not, um, it's very much a career where, uh, you have to really, especially in like web, you have to kind of, you always have to keep up on what's going on. And, um, somebody gave me the advice and, and take it for what it's worth. I think there's a lot of truth to it. Like be very careful about like moving into the industry. If it's not something that you would find yourself doing as a hobby too, like you need to take a break and you don't want it to consume you, but it moves so fast that. Yeah. I mean, I like think I'm very careful how I say that, but exactly. Well, and you know, not everyone has the luxury to be doing that type of thing yes, as a hobby. Yes, that is very true too. And I think it's, you know, I think we exclude a lot of people if we yeah. say you've got to be super passionate about it to do it. Like it is completely yeah. legitimate to do this as a job. Yes. But be aware that you're going to yeah. have to invest a lot of time keeping yeah. up and learning. Yeah. And so, you know, you can do that because you're passionate about yes. it and that's awesome. Yeah. You yeah. can do that because that's part of what you signed up for yeah. for a job. You do need to be aware of it. That yeah, that is exactly. something you get in this. Yeah. Maybe industry. it's like listening to podcasts on your drive in or on your commute in or something. But yeah, just those little things. Like you gotta be aware that it's not uh it's not one and done. Like I did my studying yes, and now I can yes, work the rest of yes. my life doing it. No, it's a constant yeah, effort of learning. It, yeah. And if you're the kind of person that thrives on that, like I think it's, it would be a great career. <laughs> awesome. Anything else you want to highlight or talk to? I know you mentioned you, you want to, 
you're doing some stuff with podcasting. Oh. <laughs> so we love podcasting. Yeah, yeah so I listen to the changelog. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to check out the JavaScript Jabber podcast, I do that too. Um, yeah, check what out. What kind of stuff do you cover? Besides, I mean, JavaScript, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, all JavaScript. Um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, we, we're, you know, obviously JavaScript podcast. So we try to focus on JavaScript. But we talk about um, sometimes, like, soft skill stuff. And uh, we'll talk about just, like, tech in general. And, um, yeah. So, or, or I will say this, too. I have, um, like, my Twitter DMs are open because being somebody who entered into this field, uh, I got so much help from so many people. I'm just like eternally grateful to them. And sometimes I think it can be very intimidating as a new person to go to like a forum or something like that. So um, it may take me a while to get back to people, but feel free to like shoot me an email or a Twitter DM or, or something like that. And I'll do whatever I can to like try to personally help you. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a scalable solution. So like I said, it takes me a while sometimes, but I've been an intimidated person before and like sometimes that personal touch people need. So that raises actually a really good question. Um, another <laughs> conversation we were having is, so we now have a lot of these boot camps and, yeah. and things that are really good at getting people to entry level. Yep. But the growth path yeah. from entry level to, you know, yeah. mid senior yeah. tech lead, something yeah. like that is much fuzzier. Yes. <laughs> um, and as I said, you seem to have been doing quite well at it. Uh, you're, coming out and speaking at talks, <laughs> you're, you're uh, keynoting places, you're on the podcast. What are your recommendations for folks who are maybe they've Ooh. gotten into the industry, <laughs> they've been there for a year or so, and they're trying to say, like, how do I get to the next level? Yeah, man, that's a hard thing. And I, um, I always like preface uh, advice I give with, you know, this is what worked for me. I don't know that it will necessarily work for you. There's a million different ways to go about things. But um, I've never been really focused on you know, mid senior stuff like that. I am, I will find something that I'm excited about, uh, and I will dive into that. And that's how I progress. Um, I am very much the like junior dev for life mentality. And I, I think too, like we were talking about, um, you know, you gotta be careful not to burn yourself out. I'm in it for the long haul. And so I try to keep a like slow and steady wins the race mentality. Uh, so that would be that would be my advice. Like, slow and steady wins the race. Stay excited. Um, you know, guard yourself so that you don't get burned out. So you can stay excited and you can keep progressing. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know, and our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today. I'm here with Brian Hughes, technical evangelist from Microsoft, Nebrius in all things online, Twitter, GitHub, et cetera, and longtime open source contributor primarily in JavaScript. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. You bet. So you gave a talk this morning. Can you, I did. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So it was a talk that was an introduction to TypeScript. Uh, TypeScript is something I've been using for about two and a half years now. Uh, not surprisingly, I started using it when I first started working at Microsoft. Uh-huh. Uh, before that, I worked at a series of startups. So I'd been doing JavaScript for a long time. 
uh, but just not TypeScript. Uh, although long back in the day before I graduated college, uh, I was a C++ developer. So like I started on C++. I came from that static typing world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, I moved to JavaScript. And there's a lot of things I really liked about JavaScript even early on. Well, once I actually got to know it, as opposed to just you know what I'd heard from other people kind of ragging on it. Once I actually got to know, I was like, there's a lot I really like about this. Yeah. But I missed static typing. That was always the one thing that I really didn't like. I felt like I had lost the safety net that I was just used to. Mm-hmm. And so like I was just immediately drawn to TypeScript whenever uh, it first came out. And when I you know moved to Microsoft and I had a chance to actually use it in production and see like actually like the good best practices, proper ways of using it, not just you know little hello world and thing like that. Uh, I was like, this is really, really great. I love this. Uh, and so yeah, I've been talking about it in addition to using it. And so my talk today was it was titled TypeScript in Practice, and mm-hmm. it was sort of the an introduction to TypeScript the way I wish that I could have had it back then. In which, like, I talk about the language some. I don't go into a lot of detail, but I talk about it some. But more importantly, I talk about all the other things, like all those other considerations and questions that we come up with whenever we think, like, should we use you know, a language? Such as, like, how do I incorporate external code? How do I, do I use it in React with Webpack? And, like, right. you know, how do you get all those integration stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, what, yeah. what are the best practices? All the nitty gritty guts yeah. that go into not just doing a tutorial, but using uh, this thing for real. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Which I, I think it went well. I uh, got a lot of good feedback on it. And, and it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. Like, I, I really, really love TypeScript. Yeah. One of the things I love about TypeScript, and I'm not really a big TypeScript user, but I love the way that, in contrast to some other attempts to add typing to JavaScript, it is literally a superset of the JavaScript language. So you can drop JavaScript in and it just works. Makes it a lot easier to migrate and to just just start using. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really one of TypeScript's like greatest powers, is that it is a superset, and that like you know vanilla JavaScript is TypeScript. And I think that kind of that design decision came very early on, of course. Uh, and I think it was informed by a couple of historical events. Uh, you know, no, no technology ever exists in a background or in a vacuum. And like one of the things about TypeScript is it was one of the first compiled to JavaScript languages to become popular after CoffeeScript. And, and I think that's really important. Like, like CoffeeScript, it's easy to kind of criticize a lot of its design decisions. Now, I was personally never a, a big fan of it, but it was really important. And, and I think we should give it a lot of credit in that it sort of invented the whole compile to JavaScript phenomenon. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't really have Babel the way it looks today without CoffeeScript uh, because it pioneered it. But it did, of course, have a, a number of drawbacks. I think the biggest one of which, which you're kind of hinting at is that it was an all or nothing. If you wanted to use CoffeeScript, you had to rewrite your entire code base. And like that's just not very tenable. And, yeah. and I think that was one of the big complaints, especially once people actually started using it. Uh, and so we couple that with... And well, the ternary operator. Yeah. They didn't have a ternary operator, uh-huh. but it was still valid syntax. Uh-huh. So you'd do it, you'd think it was going to work, <laughs> and you'd spend an hour or two or three figuring uh-huh. out why the heck is my code... Not that I ever did this or anything. <laughs> oh, oh, of course not. Of course not. But I do also seem to recall that it was technically an ambiguous grammar, too, which is something you don't normally see in yeah, languages. Yeah, problematic. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the designers of TypeScript, you know, definitely saw this context, but also, I think, coupled with the context of Microsoft in general mm-hmm. and how we are now versus how we used to be. You know, Microsoft has a very long and questionable history. Uh, especially in the web world. And, you know, we're very conscious of how we're perceived now. And and I think there's a lot of effort from a lot of us to try and, I guess in a way, right the wrongs of the past. Uh And and so we're very conscious, not just of the technology we create, but how it's going to be perceived and, like, what its role and place is going to be. So when we were looking at designing TypeScript, 
you know, we're, we're very conscious of, well, our own history with the web, uh, and also which is paying a lot of attention in general to like how will users actually perceive this, you know, technically, but also kind of socially. Yeah. You know, given that you know people have a lot of feelings about CoffeeScript, and you know, we wanted to avoid those comparisons, and we also wanted to avoid the comparisons of like, oh, Microsoft just wants to bring C Sharp to the web or, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, right. And TypeScript is not C Sharp. Uh, like yeah. especially when you dig into it, it's very different than C Sharp. Uh, and I actually see TypeScript trip up C Sharp developers about as much as I see them trip up vanilla JavaScript developers. Kind of like when both sets are just kind of starting to learn it. Right. Um, but I do think it's a really great language, and kind of once you get over an initial learning curve, it, it really accelerates uh, productivity. Uh, which is perhaps a, sounding a little contradictory. Like most people think, oh, static typing it means I have all this overhead. There's so much more work I have to do now. Uh, and it may be a little bit true at first, but the analogy I always like to make is that's a lot like unit tests. And that right. unit tests are overhead, right? Yeah. You know, they are that. You know, we can talk about it all sorts of different ways, but it is overhead at the beginning. Right. But, you know, once we get them in place, we save so much time down the road that it actually does save us time. It's really we're not adding work. We're shifting work from the debugging phase more to the design phase. And I think TypeScript does the exact same thing. It's, we do a little bit more work up front, but it saves us work down the road. Well, and we're especially seeing the rise of typed languages for web development as more and more complexity moves to the front end and moves to things that are being developed in JavaScript or JavaScript-like languages, compiled to JavaScript languages, things like that. We're seeing that with that additional complexity, having some additional support can be pretty useful. Mm -hmm. And and I think uh, VS Code's a really good example of this in that TypeScript was in a way, kind of also developed to really help out the VS Code team. Because uh, like that code base is actually a lot lo- older than VS Code itself. It started off as an online editor called Monaco. Uh, I want to say it was maybe part of the Azure portal, but it, I, don't, I don't actually quite remember, but I know it was part of our online property. And not actually, it wasn't originally developed to be like a desktop editor. Huh. Uh, it was when Electron came around, we're like, hey, wait, we've got this really good online editor. I think we could do things here. But there was yeah. so much more that had to be added. And they started as a project kept growing. It was kind of becoming like unmanageable, right? And so you know, brought TypeScript in, and now it's back to being a really manageable code base. And I want to say it's about half a million lines of code, something like that these days. It's not a small code base at all, right? Uh, and I think once you get to that size, you know, not using static typing is untenable. Yeah. Well, I saw online. I don't know if this just came out as being public knowledge or or not, but uh, that the whole Office 365 suite of products is being rewritten in JavaScript using React Native for different devices and things like that. And I would assume when they say JavaScript, they probably mean TypeScript. I would assume so as well. I have no inside information on that. Um, I, a lot of things at Microsoft are a big company. I tend to learn on Twitter, <laughs> you know, the same as everyone That's else. That's where I learned it. Yeah, the same thing with like, you know, the GitHub acquisition. So I have no inside information on this, but I would be pretty surprised if we didn't use TypeScript for it. I want to go in another direction. I saw in your, uh, I don't remember if it was your website or your bio, but that you've done some stuff in the IoT world. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess that was with JavaScript or TypeScript? Uh, it's a longer story than that, uh, but the answer is yes for the last several years. Uh, and I actually majored in electrical engineering in college, so I started doing hardware in like 2001 kind of thing. Uh, so well before the term IoT existed and right. well bef- before even like the Arduino existed kind yeah. of thing. So I didn't start doing JavaScript on hardware. Um, whenever I graduated, though, I graduated uh, with a PhD in 2010. 
PhDs take a while. 2010 was not a particularly great time to be entering the job market. Uh, you know, we're you don't still say. kind of in, yeah, <laughs> right. There's this whole like recession thing that happened. Yeah. And, yeah. So it, it was, it was actually pretty tough to find a job, especially since I didn't go to a top 10 school. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up working for a startup, uh, doing pure software. I was actually writing Java. Uh, but during that, uh, we ended up having to do some JavaScript work as well. And like, I actually remember this was a eight-person startup kind of thing. So we sat in the room because the entire company can fit in one room. We're like, uh, so we need to do some stuff with uh, this whole new HTML5 thing people are talking about. Anyone know JavaScript in the room? Anyone? Anyone? All right, new guy, you get to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, that's kind of how I got started. So I was very much thrust into the software world, or, or the pure software world, I should say. I, and just been, to ask, your PhD was also in electrical engineering? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've been coding since the late 90s, so I'm like definitely not new to software. Right. But uh, I didn't expect to go into pure software. Right. Uh, but I did for a while. But then I went to JSConf uh, US in 2013, and that was a pretty transformative conference. Because uh, it was there, there was a couple of key people from the Johnny Five project, which, for those who aren't familiar, it's a, a Node.js robotics framework for, well, for Node.js, I guess I that's totally a cyclical definition. But Ignoring JavaScript that. robotics. JavaScript robotics, yeah. Robotics uh, and JavaScript. Yeah, and this was like early days of the project, too. I think the project was less than a year old at this point. Mm-hmm. But I was like, this is awesome. I was like, I, I did stuff in like a four-hour workshop that would have taken me two weeks in assembly, which yeah. is what I did in college. Right, right. And so like that kind of drew me back in. And so I got involved uh, as a collaborator on the Johnny Five project. Uh, I maintained Raspberry Pi support for it which the Raspberry Pi was the first platform supported that was not part of the initial set that uh, Rick Waldron created, too. So I guess that's kind of my biggest claim to... Well, I don't know if it's my biggest claim to fame, but a claim to fame in any case. You are the Johnny Five Arduino supporter? Is that what you're saying? Uh, Raspberry Pi. I'm sorry, Raspberry Pi. Yep. Uh, brain fart. Yep, so if I, you I've use been doing a... this for two days. I'm like, where's the brain? No, sorry. <laughs> totally Red, understandable. Uh, so you are the Raspberry Pi Johnny Five supporter to this day yes and to you this did day. The, the original implementation as well i did i did we many people have to thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really cool to see like how many people have used you know the software they wrote and all the cool stuff that they've created with it uh it's just there's so much creativity out there uh so if you know uh, tomomi yamura just as, as one example she uh used a raspberry pi and johnny five so that's my software and she created this like automated cat feeding system that had like cat facial detection and all this other like really awesome stuff and i'm like that's amazing that's pretty cool and so it's really cool uh, like especially in the it world like working on these kind of frameworks and how we can enable people to do so much cool stuff and especially a lot of really cool art yeah so i'm kind of curious what you see happening in that direction because i feel like iot has gotten a lot of buzz and it's very accessible in a lot of ways now, right? You can get a Raspberry mm-hmm. Pi. I don't know what the current going cost is, but it's 50 bucks, something small. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to know anything but JavaScript because you can run in with Johnny Five and just start making stuff. So where is this going to go next? Uh, it's an interesting question, I, I think, because, uh, yeah, th- we're definitely in a, a hype phase of IoT. It, it strikes me as a little different than hype that I've seen for other technologies in the past. Uh, like I very much remember the HTML5 hype bubble, uh, and that very much was a hype bubble. Uh, you know, cryptocurrency maybe kind of a similar kind of hype bubble. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment one way or another. <laughs> I don't know it deeply enough, and Fair. I know people yeah. have a lot of very strong opinions. There are some strong opinions there. Yeah, but, but you, you know, there's this definitely kind of like a hype bubble. I don't really see the hype around IoT as a bubble, though, uh, and, and that's because there's the underlying tech and the underlying markets 
mm-hmm. is actually very different than the others. Yeah. And uh, that IoT, like as a market, people actually creating products is very old. It's like not a new thing at all. People have been doing it for decades, in fact. Uh, it's just like the way we do it, and more importantly, who is the ones doing it? That's what's changed. Is that now as hardware has become a lot more accessible, you don't have to be an electrical engineer to do it anymore. Right. I mean, electrical engineers have been doing this kind of work for so long. So, like, the market's already been proven with IoT. Right. Like, we know that there's a market for this. Uh, it's just a matter of like making it easier to do and bringing in new developers so that we can create more products. It's not necessarily that we can do new things now. Uh, I mean, a little bit like the cloud helps with that, uh, but I think that. With IoT, it's basically old school hardware with new cloud things, which is it's really the same thing that we're seeing in mobile and web and everything else. Like cloud is nothing new exactly. Like we've had servers for a long time. What it does though, and why it's powerful, is that it makes it easy. Right. Right. It's and not cheap. new, but easy and cheap. Yeah. And so you know, it's that lowering the barrier to entry is just super important because that's where we start to get new ideas built on top of it. But I think IoT is the exact same thing. It's just making this thing that's existed for a long time easier. And yeah, I think the Raspberry Pi, Arduinos, and all that play a big role. And, but also things like Johnny Five and the fact that you don't have to write this in C anymore or assembly even. Right. You have a little bit of a web development background. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you can get started. Yeah. Start playing with it. I want to touch back to something uh, related to kind of how you got into software. Because I, one of the things I love about our field is that people can come into it from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, you don't need to go and study computer science for four years to get into software. So can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your trajectory getting into the software industry? Uh, It sounds like you'd been coding for quite a while, but that wasn't what you studied. So how was it getting in? How was it getting going? And what's kept you around? It's definitely been a trajectory. Uh, It's interesting how, like, reflecting on it now, I see how, like, market-driven I was in a lot of ways. Uh, so, like, back when I was in high school, I, I took AP computer science back then. So I had, like, formal computer science training early on. Uh, but I was like, well, okay, I really like this. Uh, I actually also thought about going to theater because I was really good at technical theater. Uh, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. Uh, both my parents are musicians, so uh, yeah, I kind of know. I actually know a surprising number of musicians who code to make money to support their mm-hmm. lifestyle as musicians. Yeah, I know. Like, if I'd seen this, you know, 15 years later, it might have been a different decision. Uh, but it was a little hard to, to get into coding back in the 90s, I think. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing was, so I graduated in the summer of 2001 from high school, which means I started looking at colleges at the, the fall of 2000, spring of 2001. And I'm interested in coding. Like, I really liked coding. But uh, that was the uh-huh. death of the bubble. It what was. are we going to do? Nobody's yeah. going to study computer science. Uh-huh. You'll never be able to get a job. Exactly. I was like, is this even going to be an industry in five years? Like, I had no idea. So I was like, that would be the worst idea ever to go into computer science in 2001. Uh, so I was like, well, I, I really like my physics class. And we kind of went over some basics of electrical engineering. Uh, and that was also like theater. But I decided, no, I wanted a more stable career. So electrical engineering was it. Nice. And then going along. Mm-hmm. 2010, yet another recession. <laughs> yeah. Man, you've had yeah. the best timing. Oh, I know, right? Uh, and you ended up at a startup? Uh, I did, I did. I actually had two competing offers at the time. One was from Intel, uh, and the other was the startup that uh, I actually ended up working at. Uh, and I decided to try the startup thing, just so I was kind of interested in it. Uh, and so this startup, it was called Particle Code, something that I think no one ever knows. We had a beta product w- when we were acquired type thing. Right. But it was a really cool product. Uh, so what this was, was it was a... 2D isomorphic gaming engine uh, cross-platform. So think Unity, but for 2D isomorphic, and specifically on mobile. Hmm. And mobile in 2010 was a very different world. You yep. Know? Yep. 
Android and iPhone were the big up and comers. So we supported them. And that was like one of our big things is like, hey, you can get onto these new things where there's not much support. But you can also support, you know, BlackBerry and Symbian and kind of what at the time was your base market. And the way we did this was you would write it in Java. It was, well, a subset of Java. We supported the whole language, but not the whole JDK. Right. Uh, and then we had our own SDK as well. So you would write to that in Java, and then we'd cross-compile it to whatever language the platform was on. So, well, Java to Java in a couple of cases, but also to Objective-C, C++. And then eventually we were like, well, mobile HTML5 right. as well. Yeah. Mm. One of the things I love about startups in particular as a way to get into the industry is if you're in a startup, there are no barriers. If you're willing mm-hmm. to do it, go do it because there's mm-hmm. always more to be done than there are people to do it. So I, I kind of got into the industry in the same way. I studied physics mm-hmm. in college, got out and said, I don't know what the heck I want to do, but it sure isn't physics. Uh, <laughs> ended up at a startup and I was doing basically testing, but they had software and I was able to first write test harnesses and then start mucking around because it's a startup. Anything you're willing to volunteer and sign up to do, you can learn to do and go do it. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to complain because that's like less work for everyone else to do. And everyone has so much work at startups. It's kind of the cool thing. That's another thing I love about it is we end up doing all these like different things. Yeah. And we really kind of like stretch ourselves a lot. You know, we're not just like, oh, I am the Node.js API person. I, I don't do database stuff. I don't do you know, like that's not an option. Yeah. So it really kind of pushes us to learn because we have to, because if we don't do that, the startup goes under. Absolutely. It's a great way to break into the industry. And I think a very valuable lesson, too. And I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned at big companies as well, but they're a different set, to be sure. <laughs> um, so for anyone looking to get started in, let's pick either IoT, robotics, or TypeScript, where do you recommend they start out? Uh, so for on the IoT side, definitely Johnny5. Uh, you can go to uh, Johnny-5, all letters, uh, .io. And there's like the API docs and all that, but we, we're really good about documentation for that project. Like documentation has always been a really big goal of ours because uh, I guess especially when we were starting out, we were targeting beginners, people very, very new to hardware, possibly even new to coding in general. Right. And so we put a lot of effort into our documentation. So there's a lot of like examples there. Uh, there's documentation about all the boards, uh, you know, some tutorials and guides and everything else. So like that's a really good place to start. Are there online simulators? So if I don't have a board, I can still start playing with it? Uh, that one's a little trickier. You can do it in Johnny 5 if you know how to muck around. Uh, essentially, we're using our test harness, but it, it's not particularly interesting. Uh, so I would say the best thing to do is to go get an Arduino. And they actually do make some pretty affordable kits mm-hmm. where you get like an Arduino plus a couple of sensors for maybe like 50 bucks. Awesome. And, uh, and also, I just recommend it especially for hardware because like the cool thing about hardware is that it's tangible. Yeah. It's like there's a physical thing. You can touch it and feel it. Uh, and like, you know, getting an LED to light up, which getting an LED to light up is the hello world of hardware. But it's so much cooler than seeing some text in a console. Like, like it, it makes, you know, the typical software Hello World, like, so boring. <laughs> You'll never go back. You never go back, yeah. So I definitely recommend getting hardware just because there's this, like, tangible factor to it that makes it re- real. Uh, and then as far as TypeScript, uh, typescriptlang.org is the main website. It's got a lot of pretty good information. Uh, also, some of the uh, key folks working on it, uh, whose name is escaping me all of a sudden, but it has a, a blog, uh, Daniel's his name. I can't remember his last name, but he has a blog and he does a lot of like uh, talking about it a little more in depth as well. So that can be a good uh, location. And I think there's some books out there as well. Um, I actually don't learn well from books, so I don't really keep track of what you know the current books are. But I think there are some like O'Reilly books out there. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live 
on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.